razors, a complete visual history of heavy metal mayhem by Alex Rosenberg and Christopher Crowbeton. This book is dedicated to the Birmingham sheet metal machine that ripped off two of Tony Iommi's fingers. Thanks for everything. Chapter 2 The New Wave of British Heavy Metal What is it? Operatic muscle rock full of tasty feels and guitar acrobatics with lyrics about killing fictional characters. Who listens to it? Working class vest wearers who say man a lot. Ultra underground metalheads who need something to relax to. Italian teenagers. Where does it come from? Great Britain and the Netherlands. Bastard children, opera metal, speed metal, classic metal, power metal, and vest metal. The Big Four, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Venom, and Motorhead. And so, wielding the devil's tritone like a flaming sword, Black Sabbath sliced open the depressive womb of the 1970s, yanked out the wriggling child within it, and held it aloft so that the crowd could hear it scream. But metal wasn't metal. Not yet. Though Sabbath's unique brand of what drummer Bill Ward called downer rock was revolutionizing how evil music could sound, it was still slow, simple, and broken up by interludes of piddling psychedelia. If this music was to leave its beery thumbprint on the face of the world, it needed to offer more than just stomping riffs for weary potheads. It needed excitement, insanity, and most of all, technicality. For many of its creators, the new wave of British heavy metal, sometimes referred to as Nuwabam, began with the sole intent of forming a band that sounded like Sabbath and Deep Purple, but faster and louder. But while Sabbath was expressing the drabness of everyday life in industrial England, the Nuwabam bands were escaping it. The sonic scope and much lauded rock star antics of Led Zeppelin, David Bowie, and Queen had taught them that there was a wide world out there full of soaring singers and gravity-defying outfits. At the same time, the dramatic playing of bands like Thin Lizzy and Van Halen instilled in young British headbangers a respect for the technical ecstasy of classical music, albeit one that was channeled through a hairy 1970s biker sneer. Armed with drama, overkill, and machismo, the next generation of bands made their guitars louder, their drums faster, their vocals higher, and their worlds bigger. Their music was over the top enough to earn the sheer weight of heavy and the gleaming razor's edge of metal. The band that got together first turned out to be the one that raised the heavy metal flag the highest and interestingly enough 
hailed from the same town as Black Sabbath. Formed in 1969 and named after a Bob Dylan song, Judas Priest started out as just another noise complaint in the bell bottoms until the combination of guitarist K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton bassist Ian Hill and piercing falsetto singer Rob Halford turned the band into a powerhouse that sounded like the hum of a hoverbike engine as it soared over the apocalypse. Priest put out several albums of groundbreaking proto-metal until striking gold with 1980's British Steel, famous for its genre-defying single, Breaking the Law. Judas Priest's music is unequivocal. It sounds like metal, literally, like crashing sheets of steel set to infectious melody. Tipton and Downing's concussive risks and slicing harmonies were purposefully honed to dangerous perfection. Halford's vocals were a mixture of snotty battlefield snarl and cloud-parting Valkyrie cry as he told operatic tales about scoring with chicks, or so we thought at the time. The band's musical and lyrical theme is one and the same. Power. After British Steel, Judas Priest became the forward face of heavy metal, embodying all of its undeniable strengths and hilarious flaws. The members dressed in studded leather to the point where they looked like bondage bikers from Mars. Halford even rocked a cop hat and would ride his motorcycle across the stage during live shows. The band's songs were epic and technical, but often told stories of killer robots and horny vampires. Their videos were massive hits on MTV. The band responded by trying to write keyboard-heavy radio singles. Unlike their peers, however, the members of Priest managed to pull their heads out of their own asses quickly enough, and in 1990 they released Painkiller, as dramatic and traditional a metal album as the world had seen since thrash became everyone's extreme music du jour. Judas Priest also embodied another metal stereotype, the heavy metal band that encouraged its fans to kill themselves. In 1990, the band was involved in a civil action suit in which it was claimed that after having hours of drinking, smoking weed, and listening to Priest's 1978 album, Stained Class, Raymond Belknap, age 18, and James Vance, age 20, were driven to commit suicide by subliminal messages hidden in Judas Priest's music. Even worse, while Belknap succeeded in killing himself, Vance failed. Horribly deformed by his self-inflicted gunshot wound, he became an unsettling poster boy for heavy metal's supposed dark intentions. Like a similar 1984 suit against Ozzy Osbourne, in which the anti-suicide ballad Suicide Solution was blamed for a teen's death, the trial of Judas Priest became a witch hunt full of fake experts and campfire story lawyers. Priest eventually won the case when it was remembered that it made no sense for a band to kill off its paying customers. However, the trial and others like it inspired a million and one washed-up psychologists to suddenly proclaim themselves experts 
on the shadowy underbelly of heavy metal culture. Following the Painkiller Tour, Halford left the band and went on to form a punchy thrash group named Fight. Priest started up again fronted by Tim Ripper Owens, a former singer in a Judas Priest cover band whose story would later be turned into the cancerous Mark Wahlberg vehicle, Rockstar. Then, Halford came out publicly as gay in 1998. This was huge. In the late 90s, heavy metal was seen as a cultural dinosaur, in part because of its toxic hyper-masculinity. To have not just a major metal musician, but the metal god come out as gay immediately showed the world that homosexuality existed. Even in, perhaps especially in, the most masculine of subcultures. Hell, Halford didn't even have long hair, which had always been a point of metalhead emasculation by dumbass rednecks and closet case hardcore kids. Thankfully, the metal community responded with rare grace, publicly lauding Rob for his bravery and supporting his decision. The band eventually fired Owens and reunited with Halford and continues to kill it live to this day. Fighting to this day! To this day! To this day! For many, Judas Priest was a gateway drug. All across England, bands were mixing heavy riffs with large-form hard rock. Ozzy Osbourne began his post-Sabbath career by biting the head off a dove while meeting with record executives. His debut solo album included the smash hit Crazy Train, the official heavy metal track of minivan dads everywhere. Power meddlers Diamond Head or perhaps cheesy doom meddlers, became known for looming guitar sounds and dark lyrics. Am I Evil was an anthem for all metalheads who preferred demons to dungeons, including Metallica, whose cover of the track today remains the primary reason why anyone cares about Diamond Head at all. Meanwhile, in Sheffield, a group named Atomic Mass underwent lineup and name changes and became Def Leppard. The band went on to become a hair metal juggernaut and feature, and probably the most famous one-armed drummer of all time. Of course, everyone sucked compared to Iron Maiden. Then again, Maiden wasn't trying to sound like Judas Priest. The group had its own thing going, eventually at least, and it changed metal forever. Even if for some weird reason you're reading this book despite never cared about metal, there's a great chance you know what Iron Maiden's logo looks like. Though Iron Maiden not be the biggest metal band in the world, that honor falls to Metallica, it is certainly the most iconic. Like Judas Priest, its members never wanted to be anything more than a heavy metal band. Unlike Priest, they didn't feel the need to wear that fact on their sleeves. The band's technical talent and catchy hooks spoke for themselves. The first two Iron Maiden albums, 1980's self-titled debut and 1981's Killers, 
are full of decent songs and showcase the beginnings of bassist Steve Harris' mind-blowing songwriting capabilities. For many old-school fans, including members of Slayer, they're important records. But singer Paul Diano struggles with harsh vocals in a way that makes it seem as though he's being outclassed by the band behind him. Mostly, these albums are notable for introducing the world to Eddie, Iron Maiden's leery zombie mascot. It was 1982's The Number of the Beast that put Maiden on the map. The album was the band's first to feature vocalist Bruce Dickinson, an intelligent and energetic frontman whose voice actually earns the often overused adjective, soaring. Dickinson has a bombastic tenor wail with a mind-boggling range, <clears throat> and his enthusiasm and puckish stage presence make him the frontman that a band as baroque and talented as Iron Maiden truly deserves. He also provided distinctly English lyrical themes, classic literature, East End harlots, and London during the Blitz, making Iron Maiden's underlying atmosphere synonymous with British metal. With Dickinson on board, Iron Maiden became the band it was truly meant to be. Its music was too brilliant to be looked down on and too forceful to be yawned at. As big hair and glitter became the face of mainstream rock and roll, Iron Maiden entertained sold-out festival crowds with tracks like The Trooper and Two Minutes to Midnight, thus satisfying a generation of musicians who wanted a stiffer drink than the coconut rum cocktail of glam metal. Like every other great metal band, the group had some issues during the angst-choked angst 1990s when Dickinson left and the band made two lousy albums about computers. But Maiden recovered quickly, with Dickinson returning in 2000 for the crushing Brave New World. The singer has since gotten his pilot's license and actually flies the band's touring plane, Ed Force One, thus making him the second coolest frontman in all of metal. We have to do Venom first, and then we'll talk about number one. Interestingly enough, Iron Maiden got hit with the satanic rap harder than its peers, even though the band barely mentioned the devil at all. Sure, the cover of Number features Eddie using the devil like a marionette, as Lucifer himself uses a marionette to Eddie, to entertain the hordes of hell, it's hard to explain. Just look at the picture of the cover. And yes, the title track's lyrics have some demonic overtones, though 666, the one for you and me, is maybe the lamest thing any Satanist could say. But, given that the track is Maiden's only real claim to devilry, the emphasis put on the band's involvement in the corruption of 80s youth was a little ridiculous. For years, TV preachers would hold up the sleeve of number and point to the title as though it explained why some kids preferred smoking weed to doing homework. Many other bands suffered somewhat foolishly through the satanic panic, just as Maiden had. One such act was American power metal group Dio, led by former Elf Rainbow Black Sabbath frontman 
Ronnie James Dio himself. Many metalheads learned the devil horn's hand motion from Dio, but the singer used it as the ancient sign to ward off the evil eye, which he learned from his Italian grandmother. Besides, all of Dio's songs were about being either a disillusioned teenager or some sort of valiant adventurer. Nonetheless, his music and logo were often displayed as a sign of devil worship that parents should look out for. If you wanted Satan in the new album, the guys who were the most serious about it weren't even British. They were Danish. Merciful fate went full philosophical Satanism, primarily thanks to lead singer King Diamond, a Draculean character who accepted the nuanced fallen angel of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan as his lord and savior. Merciful Fate was so unabashedly diabolic that one of its songs made it to Tipper Gore's infamous Filthy Fifteen list. But even the Fate's Satanism was tempered by the technical talent of its members. Diamond's explanations of his religion were always interesting and well-spoken, never touching on virgin sacrifice or blood rites, and his vocals were delivered in an eardrum-shattering falsetto that, through eerie, that though eerie, sounded less than demonic to many metalheads. For the less refined Satanist, there was a venom from Newcastle. If Merciful Fate was a Hammer horror movie, Victorian nobles in costumes talking about defiling the cross, Venom was a blood-drenched exploitation flick complete with all the guts, bare breasts, and foul language that one would expect from a grindhouse double feature. Venom is pretty much how most parents imagine heavy metal. Loud, angry, sloppy, kind of dumb, and super into Satan. Its albums had pentagrams or evil creatures wearing pentagrams on them, and if the band's songs were about hanging out with the devil, they were about loose women. Occasionally, they were about getting it on with loose women in front of the devil, a topic that strangely appealed to a large number of metalheads. The guys in the band were called Kronos, Abaddon, and Mantis. Conrad, Anthony, and Jeffrey to their moms. They wore studded bondage gear and clutched skulls and bones in front of bonfires cloaked in billows of fake smoke that hid their true intentions. More than anything, Venom sounded evil, which was cool. For all of their killer riffs and sing-along hooks, most Nawabum bands were a little too flowery and hackneyed to be truly tough. It was hard to be believably scary with vocal effects and keyboard solos. Venom, meanwhile, was influenced by punk and the emerging sounds of speed metal and as such traded technicality for straight-up rage and grossness. The result is oddly compelling buzzsaw guitar tones, steady drums, and snotty coughs about death and Satan. The emphasis on attitude over ability featured on fast-paced muggers like Witching Hour and pounding death marches like Warhead 
would heavily inform future thrash bands who could only take so many wheedling solos before they needed something with a bit more brawn. Venom is also credited with spawning the many metal, mini metal subgenre names that now dominate the scene. It was Kronos who, as has brought up over and over again since, first used the term black metal to describe Venom, the band went on to make the phrase the title of its second full-length album. Meanwhile, its melodramatic and seemingly humorless style, including the use of demonic fake names, inspired death and black metal bands for decades to come. But no matter how rugged, fast, or angry it sounded, Venom was even cheesier than its peers. At least by not overdoing their evil personas, the members of Maiden and Priest didn't have to later admit they were just some guys who liked having a beer now and then. Venom, meanwhile, was forced to concede that those satanic demeanors were a put-on, thus diminishing what made the band special to their fanbase. Only one band could truly walk the walk and talk the talk. Like Venom, it didn't get too bogged down in technicality, but it also didn't need Halloween costumes to make the world stand back, mouths agape. Not with that front man. Ian Fraser Kilmister was born on Christmas Eve 1945 in Stoke-on-Trent. As a schoolchild, Ian saw a classmate with a guitar surrounded by chicks and decided to bring his mother's guitar to school long before he knew how to play it. At age 16, he saw the Beatles at the Cavern Club, and it inspired him to become a rock star. By age 23, he was a roadie for Jimi Hendrix and being paid in hits of acid. His habit of borrowing money from the slot machines, borrowing money for the slot machines, earned him the nickname Lemmy, as in, Lemmy borrow a fiver, mate. Lemmy later joined space rock crew Hawkwind as bassist and vocalist, but was fired from the band as the U.S.-Canadian border for having a bunch of speed on him at the time. He decided that Hawkwind's indulgent, psychedelic rock wasn't for him. Instead, he was going to form a louder, meaner band that would play kick-ass rock and roll songs about boozing, fucking, and feeling weird. Lemmy wanted to call the band Bastard, but he knew he couldn't get on top of the pops with a name like that. So he stole the title of the last song he wrote for Hawkwind and called the band Motorhead with an umlaut, because it looks cooler that way. Motorhead's music is the soundtrack to a bar fight. Its songs are about whiskey, women, feeling down, listening to rock and roll, and feeling better, all song in a voice like a bad muffler on an old plane. Lemmy also had a distinct bass sound, trading the plunking tone of most bands for a growl of distortion and a riffy chug so that every Motorhead song sounds as though there's a chopper's engine roaring in the background. Though the band released 22 albums with countless classics on them, 
It is 1980's Ace of Spades and its rip-roaring title track that will forever be remembered by fans, historians, and people who aren't metalheads attending a metal concert. Even as a dude with no mugshot, Lemmy was still the ultimate rock and roll outlaw. His hairy persona, radio-friendly looks, and steady and unabashed consumption of Jack Daniels and Speed made him the ideal for any person who feels at home in black leather. While Ozzy was biting the head off of a dove, Lemmy was getting head on stage from a female fan. While Keith Richards was getting over heroin by having his blood cleaned, Lemmy was getting turned away at the door from Kilmister's autobiography, autobiography, White Line Fever. I've got to tell you this, the doctor said. Pure blood will kill you. What? You don't have human blood anymore, and you can't give blood either. Forget it. You'd kill the average person because you are so toxic. At the same time, Lemmy escaped cliché by being complicated and honest. The love of his life drowned in the bathtub while high on heroin, making a vocal enemy of smack out of the ultimate substance abuser. He wrote the ballad, Mama, I'm Coming Home, for Ozzy Osbourne, and later claimed he made more money from the track than he did from Motorhead's many albums combined. He had a lifelong love of World War II paraphernalia that sometimes seemed questionable. Joe Pettigano's original drawing of Snaggletooth, the Motorhead Warpig, had a swastika on his helmet, which Lemmy later had removed, but he assured the world it was just a historical fascination. Lemmy himself never considered Motorhead heavy metal. Although we played it at a thousand miles an hour, it was recognizable as blues, he wrote. At least it was to us. Probably it wasn't to anyone else. And the band's inclusion on this list will certainly be debated, since much of Motorhead's early material was more like roughed-up garage rock than it was like Metallica. But Motorhead's later output, starting in the 1980s, after Lemmy lost all of his bandmates and had to reassemble the band from scratch, was distinctly metal, with just the right amount of glam squealing guitar. More so, the no-frills honesty of the band's breakneck party rock would become a tenet of metal culture. When Lemmy sang about being born to lose, the losers listened, and they discovered that even if they were warty kids who only enjoyed getting in trouble, they too could have a good time without hurting anyone. By the time Lemmy died at age 70 of cancer in 2015, he was considered rock royalty, having never found Jesus, gotten sober, or accepted any other cliched compromises that so many rock stars had scrambled from or for when, going, when the going got tough. And lo, it became a thing. With Motorhead's punk rock speed, the Nuwabum began to change. Plenty of bands, like the all-female girls' school and the sports-obsessed Raven, began churning out heavy metal tunes full of straightforward rage 
that would be called speed metal, a genre that sums up the growing pains between Nuwabum and Thrash. Other bands created their own variations on Maiden's sound, including Saxon, whose denim and leather is a European metal anthem, Grim Reaper, which was pretty laughable in its D&D monster manual interpretation of death and drama, and Witchfinder General, whose moody and gloomy music borrowed heavily from King Diamond's swooning Satanism. More than that, the new album solidified the metalhead as a cultural trope, a specific type of rock fan whose fashion sense and attitude could be identified, quantified, and parodied. This is displayed in 1980's for This Is Spinal Tap, a mockumentary following fictional heavy metal forefathers Spinal Tap as their tour collapses and their band falls apart. The film invented as many rock star stereotypes as it mocked, from cranking your amps up to 11 to wandering the ven venue unable to find the stage. An actual documentary 1986's Heavy Metal Parking Lot takes a more anthropological approach by studying the drinking habits of a bunch of tailgaters at a Judas Priest concert. For most metal bands, the mid to late 90s were a dire time. For the new wave of British heavy metal, the glory days were already passed by then. Those bands still making high-profile albums were going out on weird limbs trying new things by 1990. Even Maiden was using a lot of keyboards, and a new class of metal bands was blowing them out of the water with speedy, vicious interpretations of the classic new album sound. These bands had deeply absorbed Motorhead's message that it was okay to be ugly so long as you kicked ass, and they began pushing the boundaries of speed and good taste in the name of raw energy. Before we get to them, though, let's talk about a bunch of assholes and lipstick. The new wave of British heavy metal starter kit. Ready to run to the hills and break the law? You will need hair, 8 to 10 inches. One jacket, denim or leather. Three to five small patches for placement around jacket. One large back patch for the back center of this jacket. Light beer. 12 to 24 ounces. One van spray painted with the album cover of your choice. $12.52 for gasoline. A confused concept of masculinity. For your new wave of British heavy metal homework, the tracks are as follows Judas Priest, Breaking the Law from British Steel 1980. Diamond Head, Am I Evil? Lightning to the Nations, 1979. Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train from Blizzard of Oz, 1980. White Witch from Angel Witch off of Angel Witch, 1980. Iron Maiden's Run to the Hills from Number of the Beast in 1982. Ace of Spades by Motorhead off of Ace of Spades in 1980. Come On Let's Go by Girl School off of Hidden Run, 1981. High and Dry, Saturday Night from Def Leppard off High and Dry, 1981. In League with Satan by Venom off Welcome to Hell, 1981. 
The Trooper from Iron Maiden off Peace of Mind, 1983. Denim and Leather by Saxon off of Denim and Leather, 1981. You've Got Another Thing Coming by Judas Priest off of Screaming for Vengeance, 1982. Aces High by Iron Maiden from Power Slave, 1984. Don't Talk to Strangers by Dio from Holy Diver, 1984. No Class from Motorhead off No Sleep Till Hammersmith, 1982. Free Country by Witchfinder General off of Witchfinder General, 1982. Black Metal by Venom off of Black Metal, 1982. Mind Over Metal by Raven off of All for One in 1983. Fear No Evil by Grim Grim Reaper off of Fear No Evil in 1985. A Dangerous Meeting by Merciful Fate off of Don't Break the Oath from 1984. And Wasted Years by Iron Maiden off of Somewhere in Time in 1986. That will complete this edition of the Monster Reads Hellraisers, Chapter 2 on the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, a.k.a. New Wabam. Join me in the next edition of this series as we delve into the glittery depths of glam metal. Alright, for this edition of the bonus track, we have Metal Mascots, Hell, Anthropomorphized. One of the many ways in which metal is different from other forms of music is in its use of mascots. Oh sure, plenty of groups in various genres have logos, from the Rolling Stones to the Wu-Tang Clan. But anthropomorphic mascots? This phenomenon is truly unique to metal. First, we have Snaggletooth. The original metal mascot was Motorhead Snaggletooth, a dog-boar hybrid wearing a spiked metal helmet. Snaggletooth was created by illustrator Joe Pagano, working for Lemmy Kilmister's instructions to make something like a knight or a rusty robot, a biker patch that could be displayed on the back of a denim vest. Snaggletooth graces all of the band's album covers. Eddie the Head. Snaggletooth was the first metal mascot, but he's neither the most famous nor the best. That honor belongs to Iron Maiden's Eddie the Head. Created by legendary artist Derek Riggs, who illustrated all of Maiden's most iconic album covers, Eddie is a zombie-like creature that has become almost as important to the band as any of its members. He has appeared on all but one of the band's album covers since its eponymous 1980 debut, as well as the vast majority of its merchandise. Eddie's face has remained more or less consistent since 1981's Killers, when Riggs made his pupils smaller and gave him a devilish grin, making him less the undead junkie he appears to be on the cover of Iron Maiden and more some kind of eternal elemental proprietor of evil. 
His most prominent appearance on the cover of 1982's The Number of the Beast sees him controlling Satan like a marionette, suggesting his powers exceed even those of the Lord of Flies. Unlike Snaggletooth, Eddie gets a costume change and some slight modifications from record to record, depending on the album's title and theme. Over the years, he has been everything from an insane asylum inmate to a pharaoh to a British soldier to a mummy to a cyborg. A giant Eddie even appears as part of the band's concerts, usually coming out on stage in his latest iteration to do battle with members of the band. Naturally, he has also been turned into action figures and bobbleheads and assorted knickknacks. Eddie also has begun a long tradition of metal mascots having the names of used car salesmen such as Murray, the massive demon utilized by Dio, Roy, Children of Bodom's version of a Grim Reaper, and Vic Rattlehead, Megadeth's mascot. Speaking of which, Vic, who has become almost as well known as Eddie the Head, is a fleshless skull with steel chains fixed over its ears, steel bars jammed into its upper and lower jaw, and a steel visor screwed over its eye sockets. The ultimate metal representation of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Although Vic doesn't actually seem to have much difficulty seeing, although Megadeth mastermind Dave Mustaine created the earliest version of Vic, it was the artist Ed Repka who perfected him on the cover of 1986 classic album, Peace Sells But Who's Buying. Like Eddie, Vic's costume sometimes changes to fit a particular theme, more often than not, he's in a suit, which is befitting of Megadeth's focus on politicians and corporate leaders as the most evil people in the world. Also, like Eddie, Vic sometimes makes appearances during Megadeth concerts. Still, Vic is not an omnipresent, as omnipresent as Eddie, and at least one of Megadeth's finest releases, 1992's Countdown to Extinction, doesn't feature him at all. Knotman. Anthrax's Knotman has the unique distinction of being the rare metal band mascot to never adorn any of the front of the band's album covers. A misshapen, mustachioed dude with a ghoulish grin, think Luigi from Super Mario Bros. If Luigi was a circus freak and a pedophile, Knotman was modeled on a doll the band found in a Boston store. Truth be told, he is the lesser of mascots for bands featuring guitarist Scott Ian, as Ian created the superior Sergeant D, a cigar-chomping skull with rotting flesh and an army helmet featuring the anarchy symbol for his other project, Stormtroopers of Death. Charlie. Charlie, the horned skull with bat wings that acts as the mascot for New Jersey's Overkill, was not introduced until the cover of the band's third album, Under the Influence, in 1988, but he's appeared on almost all the band's records since. Charlie may be the only metal mascot to ever be plagiarized. Avenged Sevenfold's mascot, Deathbat, is different from Charlie only in that he has no horns. After A7X rose to prominence, Overkill released a shirt emblazoned with Charlie and the slogan, This One's Ours, Get your own fucking logo. There are other famous metal mascots, but they suck, and we're pressed for time. The Monster's Lair is a proud member of the Myriad Podcast Network.